Hey, everybody. Welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. Today, Dr. Brian Katlos joins the show again on April 9th, 2021. An episode was published where Dr. Katlos joined the show, and we had a conversation about the Umayyad Caliphate previously gaining hegemony in the Iberian Peninsula. Today, Dr. Katlos joins the show again, and we're going to have a conversation about what life was like in the Emirate of Cordoba. So to some extent, perhaps a large extent, this episode will act as a sequel to the last conversation that we had. Dr. Katlos is Professor of Religious Studies at the University of Colorado Boulder, based in the U.S. He's also Research Associate in Humanities at the University of California, Santa Cruz, also based in the U.S. He's also co-director of the Mediterranean Seminar. He has written numerous publications over his career, including authoring a couple books as examples. The first one, Muslims of Medieval Latin Christendom, circa 1050 to 1614, which was published by Cambridge University Press. And he's also author of the book, Kingdoms of Faith, A New History of Islamic Spain, which was published by Basic Books. Welcome back on the show, O'Brien. Thanks, Andrew. It's a real pleasure to be here. So as I mentioned in the introduction, uh, you're on the show in the past. We had a a great conversation. um, And in that conversation, we were chatting about the Umayyad Caliphate gaining hegemony in the Iberian Peninsula. So that period of, of time. And... Uh, the uh, the concept and the state of the Emirate of Cordoba came up in that that conversation. But for anyone that is listening to this episode and is new to the term Emirate of Cordoba and hadn't listened to that previous episode, can you explain what the Emirate of Cordoba was? Sure, I'll, I'll try to do it as, as briefly as I can. So if we go back to the great age of Arabic Islamic expansion, which began in the late 600s uh, by the year 711 uh, Muslim Arab forces had or rather Arab-led Muslim forces they were mostly made up of indigenous North African peoples who had converted to Islam uh, crossed over from North Africa to uh, what's now Spain and conquered in the year 711 uh, what had been the Visigothic kingdom of Hispania, a Christian kingdom that uh, ruled over what's now Spain, Portugal, and the southwest of France. Now, shortly after that, in the year 750, there was a revolution within the Islamic world, and the Umayyad family who had occupied uh, the caliphate for more or less the previous century uh, were overthrown in a revolution which originated basically in what's now uh, Persia or Iran. And this led to the establishment of the Abbasid Caliphate, uh, based uh, eventually in Baghdad. The Abbasid Caliphate is what we associate with the golden age of Islam, as it were. And uh, uh, Al-Andalus, Muslim Spain, was this sort of far away marginal province. Now, when the Abbasid revolutionaries overthrew the Umayyad Caliphate, one of the things they endeavored to do was to uh, exterminate the ruling family in order to, uh, you know, prevent any uh, resistance or counter-revolution. And they did a pretty good job, except this one prince, uh, the grandson of a caliph whose name was Abdul Rahman, uh, just a young man, 
managed this really uh, hair-raising escape from the revolutionary forces in Syria who were uh, hunting him down and trying to kill him. And he fled westward, first to Egypt and then to what's now Tunisia. And then he took refuge in the mountains of Morocco among his mother's people. His mother belonged to the Nafsa tribe, which was a Berber tribe of uh, what's now Morocco or Algeria, actually. And he bided his time there for a couple of years and kind of gathered the surviving allies of the Umayyad family. And in the year 756, he crossed over to Spain, which, as I said, or Al-Andalus, which was this sort of marginal, faraway province of the Islamic world. And he uh, essentially uh, took it over. He fought against the uh, uh, allies of the Abbasids there. And in the year 756, he established himself as ruler of Muslim Spain or Al-Andalus. Now, although he was the grandson of a caliph and he was a member of the caliphal family, uh, by this time, uh, the caliphate, the new caliphate, the Abbasid caliphate had been established in Baghdad. And there was this really strong sort of belief in the Islamic world at this time that there could only be one caliph. And so when Abdurrahman established himself as the ruler of Al-Andalus, he did not declare himself as caliph of Islam. That would have sort of engendered uh, too much resistance among you know, the pious Muslims who believed there could only be one caliphate and was now uh, based in Baghdad. So instead, he characterized himself as a prince or a mir. And this is the foundation then in 756 of the Umayyad Emirate, princedom of Cordoba, where it was based, or of Al-Andalus. And it remained a princedom until uh, the year 929, when one of Abdurrahman's descendants, whose name was also Abdurrahman, there were three of them uh, by this point, uh, who was Prince of Al-Andalus, declared himself to be caliph. So when we talk about the emirate of Al-Andalus, we're talking about this period, really, uh, the Umayyad Emirate between 756, when Abdurrahman I arrived in Al-Andalus and established himself as ruler there, until the time that his great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson, Abdurrahman III, uh, declared himself to be caliph in 929. So that's basically the kind of chronological bookends uh, of the period we're talking about. Thank you for laying out that background, Brian. So then we'll focus in the conversation at 756 to 929, because that 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 is what scholars believe is the emirate of Cordoba period, right? That is correct. Okay, Rob. So in that period, uh, what was the geographic demarcation of the emirate? Well, that changed when you know when the Muslim forces crossed over to again what's now Spain in, in 711. Uh, they had the good fortune of defeating. The, basically the entire Visigothic army at a single battle in the south of Spain. And once this army was defeated, they basically, the Visigothic kingdom lay open before them. And so in a very short time, they managed to occupy and subdue uh, essentially all of it, which included, again, almost all of the Iberian Peninsula, which is to say modern Spain and Portugal, as well as the southwest of France. Now, what happened was over the period of the next 40 or so years, uh, these Muslim forces were spread incredibly thin 
Uh, you have to remember that when we look at the Arabian Peninsula at the time of Muhammad, you know, it was basically mostly desert and, you know, rather underpopulated. And there weren't that many Arabs to begin with. So you could imagine as Arab forces spread out across, uh, you know, what had been the Persian Empire and conquered much of what had been uh, the Roman or Byzantine Empire, they were fewer and fewer in number. And by the time we get to uh, Al-Andalus, there were in fact really, you know, only say like a, like a handful of Arabs who were in command of this army, an army that was largely was in its majority made up of pagan Berbers who had been obliged to or who had uh, willingly converted to Islam in North Africa and joined uh, the Muslim armies. Now, just to complicate things a little bit more, it must be said that it's important to understand that this conflict, uh, when we talk about the Muslim conquest of Visigothic Hispania and the this Muslim invasion of, of Europe itself is kind of a, an anachronistic category. But it wasn't, you know, this black and white uh, Muslim versus Christian episode. What happened was, was that the Visigothic kingdom itself was politically divided. It was kind of in the midst of a, of a long, ongoing civil war among the ruling elite. And so some of the Visigothic elite actually collaborated with the Muslim invaders and help them overthrow the Visigothic kingdom. So, you know, it's sort of a, a, a messy, a messy beginning. And then by about the year, say, you know, by the time we get to the time of Abdul Rahman or shortly, shortly thereafter, the, the frontiers of Al-Andalus kind of consolidated just south of the Pyrenees. So the Muslims no longer occupied, for the most part, southwest France and had consolidated their rule uh, basically south of the mountains in Spain. So most of the uh, Iberian Peninsula, except for the mountainous fringe in the north. Yeah, and that, um, did, did they ever have any hegemony in what would be the, the Basque um, re- region or not quite that, that far north? Well, you know, the Basque region occupied this sort of intermediary zone. And it's actually really interesting what happened there because uh, in the Basque country, the Basque country was uh, was officially Christian as well. Okay, the, the sort of the capital uh, or the largest city in the area or largest town in the area was, was Pamplona. And Pamplona was formally Christian and it was inhabited by this people that, that had also resisted Visigothic rule. These mountains are are, are very difficult to occupy and control. And so, you know, mountain people can be very resistant to outside uh, authority. Uh, they know the territory well. Mountains are difficult to govern. And so, you know, when the Muslims came, these, these Christian Basques kind of became tributaries of the Muslims. They weren't really so much conquered by them, but they sort of gave their obedience to them. And one of the reasons that they did this was the Basques were really more worried about the Christian power to the north, which was the Frankish kingdom, right? And which was always trying to establish its rule over them. And so as happened, not only with the Basques, but with a number of these kind of peripheral little kingdoms or princedoms was they they tried to play off the great powers against each other, much as in the 20th century, you saw smaller countries playing off the U.S. and the Soviet Union, basically trying to to maintain their spot in the middle 
and use these two great powers against each other. So that was kind of the situation of the Basques at this time. When, so the Emirate of Cordoba, so so we're in that period now. When we're in that period, the inhabitants that would have been living there, perhaps we can call them constituents as a, as a potential term, um, how were they how were they responding as the Emirate of Cordoba was being formed? And what I'm getting at with that question is, um, were, were, was there heavy migration? Did most stay? Uh, were there any conflicts? Were there negotiations? Can you speak about what's known about how the inhabitants that would have been there prior to the hegemony uh, re- responded? Sure. So... In Al-Andalus, uh, much like really much of the Islamic conquests, the initial period of conquest didn't necessarily uh, uh, include a, a sort of large migration or displacement of, of population. What it involved, for the most part, apart from some North Africans, some of these Berbers who came over and settled in Al-Andalus, many of whom left again shortly thereafter, But aside from them, what it really consisted of was not so much a conquest and transformation of the society, but rather a a change of who was in charge at the top, okay, at the very top. So as I said, there were very few Arab Muslim invaders, and the advantage they had was one of, uh, you know, they they could threaten to attack towns that didn't obey them, but at the same time, they couldn't really afford to uh, to uh, occupy a hostile territory because they didn't have enough people, uh, you know, to 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 be able to to to, to face a, a large local resistance. And so, what they did, and again, this was the case across much of the Islamic world, was they they co-opted local elites into ruling for them, and they became this sort of colonial upper class which was now the sort of recipient of the taxes that, uh, you know, that the ordinary people created. So, for example, after the Muslim conquest, and really until, at least until uh, Abdul Rahman arrived in 756, that's a period of half a century, many of the, uh, much of the territory of Al-Andalus remained under the rule of these same Visigothic families that had ruled it before the conquest. Now, some of these families converted to to Islam. Others didn't. Uh, They remained Christian. And what's really curious also is that the church became quite important, and this was true across the Islamic world, as an instrument of the the Muslim regime. Bishops became important functionaries and governors for the Muslims. And what's curious is if we look at the sources— the earliest historical records we have of the Muslim conquest, and these incidentally were records which were written by Christians in the 8th century, you know, you don't really get a lot of the conflict of civilizations rhetoric. What you find is that these upper-class Christians, whether they're in the church or whether they're nobility, are looking at the Muslim conquest really on pragmatic terms. And they're staking out how they're how they're going to deal with it and how they're going to maintain their power in collaboration with the new rulers. Whereas for ordinary people, 
really there was almost no change. They would have noticed very little. They were still paying their taxes, the same lords or the same rulers, and there would have been very little change for them. Um, do scholars have any sense of demographics then in terms of people? And I know you brought that up on the last uh, the, the show. It's oftentimes difficult to do estimations. But do scholars have any sense of um, immigration, how many uh, Arab people would have immigrated into the Emirate of Cordoba in this uh, period period of time? Um, people from North, North Northern Africa, like the Amazighs, the the Greek term Berbers, um, and yeah. So we'll use those two because then probably the other major um, uh, people would have been. Yeah, actually, you could bring it in your answer as well if if it's known as what the estimated population would have been of people that were previously settled as well. So any any sense of that with immigration, but then also uh, population numbers in the Emirate of Cordoba. Well, there, there are some estimates. These are, as you point out, are notoriously difficult, and I don't have them at hand, so I'm just going to, don't quote me on any of this, so I'm just going to pull these numbers out of my hat. But if you can imagine that the population of the peninsula was, in total, was, I don't know, perhaps, you know, a couple million or something like that, or a million and a half, I'm, I'm not even sure, but not that many, okay? And in terms of the Arabs who came at the time of the conquest, Really, it would have been a handful, and I'm, you know, uh, you know, real Arabs from the Arabian Peninsula. You know, I don't know, maybe you know, a couple hundred or something like that. Not that many, mm. in terms of the Berbers who came with them and made the bulk of their forces. You know, that may have been in the in the in the tens of thousands. And what happened was that these Berbers didn't just come as soldiers; they came with their families too, armies often tended to travel with their family units at this time. And a lot of these settled in Al-Andalus in the wake of the conquest of 711. Now, what happened was in the 740s, there was a series of of, uh, anti-Arab Berber revolts in North Africa and in Al-Andalus. And there were some other difficulties that happened, some crop failures and famine and stuff like that. And and a lot of these Berbers that came over in the first wave of conquest actually decamped back to North Africa. Not all of them, but probably uh, probably the bulk of them. After that, you know, there wasn't that much immigration to the peninsula. And it comes in in certain phases. One was, again, in the 740s or early 750s, there was a contingent of, of Arab soldiers who came over from North Africa to help put down the Berber revolts, talking a few thousand people at most, right? And for the most part, they ended up staying in Al-Andalus, right? After that, when Abdurrahman established himself and the Umayyad family as the rulers of Al-Andalus, then there was another sort of little wave of migration. We're not talking huge numbers, but we're talking important people who came over, all of the clients and patrons of the Umayyad family who had managed to, to survive the Abbasid revolution came into Cordoba. And that was really it for quite a while. And it really wasn't until uh, we get to the, to the mid-800s that we had another sort of wave. And again, this is not a mass migration, but a movement of primarily educated, wealthier people from uh, the Abbasid Caliphate to Al-Andalus. So we're not talking about big numbers. What we have to remember is that 
This was not a displacement of people. The bulk of the people who eventually became the Muslims of Spain were the descendants of the people who had been the Christians of Spain. It was the same people who just ended up converting. So during the Abbasid reign in the Arab region, um, there's there's evidence that um, people, some people, um, immigrated into the Emirate of Cordoba from from the Arab region during that period of time. Absolutely, you know the the Islamic world from the time of its foundation was remarkably connected, and the reason why it was remarkably connected was that you know this this vast. Uh, politically fragmented world, which stretched basically from the Indus River to the Atlantic, despite its its political fragmentation, was connected by a few important things. One was Arabic language. Another was, of course, Islam as a religion. Another was the value of Arabic culture, right? And a third was Islamic law, which was practiced in basically the same way across this entire region. And what this did was it facilitated the movement of people in the sense that, particularly if you were an educated or skilled individual and you were living in Baghdad, right, there was very little barrier to you moving and setting up shop in Cordoba. You wouldn't have to learn a different language. You wouldn't have to learn different customs. You wouldn't have to learn a different legal system or anything like that. So in the mid-800s, uh, the Abbasid Caliphate started entering a phase of extreme disruption and political disarray. And so as part of that, members of this sort of, particularly of the cultural and religious elite, thought, you know, we we got to get out of Dodge. Where can we go? And a lot of them ended up moving to Cordoba. And this is what really kind of in the mid-800s what started to transform Al-Andalus from being this poor uh, provincial backwater of the Islamic world to starting to be something more important. Okay. The Emirate of Cordoba and the Abbasid Caliphate, so in this period of time, is anything known about their diplomatic relations? Well, you know, they didn't like each other. That's for sure, Okay. In theory, the Abbasid Caliphate was bent on the destruction of, uh, of, the, uh, of the Umayyad Emirate, and technically vice versa, but they had very little uh, ability to affect that. And so, you know, on paper they were hostile, but in practice not much was happening. When Abdurrahman tried to install, when he installed himself as Prince of Al-Andalus, the Abbasid caliphs tried to make trouble by fomenting rebellion against him. And some of the people who wanted to resist him sort of took up the flag of the Abbasids as a way of uh, rationalizing and legitimizing their revolt. But that had basically petered out by the end of the 700s. So you would call it a cold peace. What's interesting, though, is you can see it in the way that that sort of global diplomacy developed at this time. So, for example... The Umayyads in Al-Andalus became quite close diplomatically to the Byzantine Empire. The Byzantine Empire was, of course, on the border of the Abbasids, so they were kind of enemies. And as the old saying goes, the old Arabic proverb goes, uh, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So Byzantium and Cordoba became quite close. And conversely, the Abbasid Caliphate and the Frankish Kingdom of Europe, think of Charlemagne, 
right? They became quite close because they had common enemies. They both didn't like Byzantium and they both didn't like Cordoba. So that's how that kind of played out. They couldn't really do anything, but but formally they were, you know, it was like a Cold War kind of thing. You mentioned um, Christianity and Christian people. You mentioned um, Islam and Muslim people in the Emirate of Cordoba. Um, is Were Jewish people inhabitants in the Emirate of Cordoba? Yes. And, you know, this, this is something of an enigma. Okay, we know that there were Jews in the Visigothic kingdom. We're not sure how many. And we know they were being treated quite badly by, uh, by the Visigothic kings in conjunction with the church. This is part of a long tradition of anti-Jewishness, which, which really incubated in the Roman Empire at the time of the, of the Jewish revolts in the second century, even before the Roman Empire became Christian. Okay, but once the Roman Empire became Christian with Constantine in 325, then sort of Romans had an additional reason not to like Jews, right? So, so this was kind of baked in to, uh, to Christian European culture, this anti-Jewishness. Now, there's a tradition that says that, a historical tradition, you'll read it in some history books, that when the Muslims invaded uh, Al-Andalus, that the Jews of the Visigothic kingdom helped them and that sometimes they served as sort of as the garrisons to to occupy these Visigothic towns. And they did this because of, you know, the, the, the way they had been treated by the Visigoths. Now, it's possible that that happened, but that there are two problems with that story. One is that it's 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 what we call a trope. It's a it's a, a little motif that occurs in historical writings all across the Islamic world, this notion that that uh, the Jews were complicit and helped the Muslims uh, conquer and occupy uh, the Roman, uh, particularly, and the Persian Empire. So the fact that it's a trope kind of sets off a little alarm bell. But the other important thing is that the histories that record this were actually written quite a bit later. Most of them were written uh, you know, around 900 or later. And by the time we get to 900, there was a significant and important Jewish community in Al-Andalus that we can see. And they were very integrated with uh, with the, uh, particularly the upper classes of the Muslim society. And so in some ways, these histories, which rec- which recounted this long history of Jewish-Muslim collaboration, served both Jews and Muslims to reinforce this sense of common identity they had. So we can't be sure if we really should believe them or not. Okay, there were undoubtedly Jews. There were Jews uh, among the Berbers as well. These Berbers, some of some Berber tribes identified as Jewish. Now, what did this mean? It's hard to say how Jewish they were or in what sense they were Jewish. This was just as rabbinical Judaism was, was coalescing as a sort of way of thinking. So you know, wouldn't be something like the Judaism we see today by a long shot. So, you know, historians are at something of a loss because we don't see a lot about Jews in Al-Andalus until the ninth century, that period when important Muslims and culturally kind of upper-class Muslims start coming from Baghdad. This is when we get more notices of Jews in Al-Andalus too, and it's likely that educated and wealthy Jews were also fleeing Baghdad and coming over from Al-Andalus. By the time we get to the year 900, 
it's clear that we have an important and influential Jewish community in Al-Andalus, which is highly integrated with the Muslim elite, as well as important settlements of Jews in the countryside, some areas that were probably overwhelmingly Jewish. Okay. The um, Today, there's, and this is not a conclusive list, but there's large cities in Spain like Valencia and Sevilla and Malaga and Cordoba. These uh, large um, Spanish cities, and again, that you know, there's there's obviously more cities than that, but that's a that's a list to get us going with this question. Um, these these large cities that uh, are very well known today, did they exist during this period of time? Perhaps smaller in population, but did 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 what for the most part the major cities in Spain that's that you know that we know today were they around in in this period of time during the Emirate of Cordoba? Yeah, most of them would have been. I mean, there were some, some cities have in, in Spain have a very, very long pedigree. A lot of them, a lot of the major cities were founded in Roman times. Uh, cities like, or even before, Barcelona uh, was founded by the, by the Carthaginians. Uh, so we're going back several centuries BCE. A city like Zaragoza was founded as a Roman, uh, uh, as a colony for the Roman army. A lot of uh, Spanish cities were, were founded as such. And they sort of survived through the vicissitudes of time through Visigothic dominion. And then many of them survived and were kind of revived uh, under Islamic rule uh, as the population began to grow again. Some cities were founded anew by, uh, by the Muslim occupants. But for the most part, we see an urban framework, which is really interesting because it, it was established uh, you know, over 2,000 years ago and managed to survive in a recognizable fashion until today. So I think you, in the last time we chatted, Brian, I think you mentioned Murcia as one of those cities, right? What's, and if that's the case, that, that was founded by um, uh, Arab people. Um, so... What's what what what's known about about that the founding of Murcia if that if I'm remembering uh, correctly? Well, <laughs> well, so Murcia was founded by uh, by one of the emirs, Abdurrahman the uh, second, and it was founded. I can't remember the exact circumstances under which it was founded, but uh, one of the things that the uh, the period of around 800 was a time of of uh, sort of consolidation of Muslim rule in Al-Andalus, and particularly of some of the emirs who wanted to establish a strong position on the coasts. So a place like Murcia would have been established both as a defensive center, uh, probably as a naval base, and as a center for trade, right? As well as, thanks to, as is often the case with these Spanish uh, cities, they're often surrounded or next to you know, incredibly rich sort of uh, market garden lands, a center for uh, for agricultural production and distribution, right? And then once it was settled and constructed, it would sort of, then the, the engine of economic growth begins when the government, in this case, the Emirates, starts building castles and palaces. These attract rich people, these attract more construction. And so cities kind of 
start to grow taking on a life of their own. I don't want to be too presumptive, but I, but it's probably going to be, you know, it's going to kind of lead with, with that. Um, was, do scholars believe then Cordoba, uh, was the, the, the capital of the Emirate of Cordoba? Absolutely. Cordoba was the most important city when, when, uh, you know, the, the Visigoths, the, their sort of functioning capital was, was Toledo. And so one of the things that conquerors often do is when they conquer uh, uh, a country or when they want to establish their rule over a country, and even even kind of kings do this, is they'll change the location of the capital. And they might do that for a number of reasons. They might do it because it's sort of more central to their position. They might do it because they feel it's more strategically advantageous. But another reason to do it is by changing the capital of a kingdom, what you do essentially is you 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 undermine all of the existing elite who are established in the old capital. So at the first capital of Al-Andalus was actually established at, at Sevilla, at Seville. And then shortly thereafter, it was moved to Cordoba. And I can't remember whether it was Abdurrahman who did it. I, I don't think it was. I think it happened before he, uh, before he came. And you can see why Cordoba is this... It's a good location. It's on the Guadalquivir River. At that time, it was communicable up to the sea, so you could have sea ships could sail up the river as far as Cordoba. There was a, a very good Roman bridge there that had to be repaired, but it was a good transit point. So, And it was located in the midst of this incredibly fertile agricultural zone. So it was kind of an ideal position for a capital, particularly because most of the Muslim presence the most important Muslim presence at this time was in the southern half of Spain. Cordoba is such a beautiful city and still has that uh, nostalgia, ancient feel to it. Well, you know, you can you can go to Cordoba today and you can you can visit the great mosque of Cordoba, which was founded by uh, uh, Abdurrahman I and which was consequently enlarged over the centuries by his successors. And it was such an amazing building that when uh, the Christians conquered, uh, when Christian Castile conquered Cordoba, and I think it was 1236, uh, you know, they were overwhelmed by the, by the beauty of the building and they could not bring themselves to, uh, to, to destroy it. So it remained uh, intact and became a church. And then eventually, a couple hundred years later, 150 years later, when they decided we should really build like a, a real church here, instead of tearing down the mosque, and rebuilding it, which usually happens, say, at a place like Sevilla, where the cathedral is now that used to be the main mosque, and it's all been built over, only the only the minaret, the bell tower remains. And Cordoba, instead, it was the mosque of Cordoba is so massive that they actually built this cathedral, this sort of Gothic-type cathedral, inside of it. So it's kind of like a, you know, it's, it's, it's this weird conjunction of, of religious traditions and architectural styles. But yeah, it is really... Uh, one of the wonders of the world, and uh, you know, you go there and you can you can look at the very uh, uh, you know stones that were that were put in place by by the order of Abdul Rahman the first. It's quite incredible. So, in a city like Cordoba, to you know, pick, pick a city for this question during the Emirate of Cordoba uh, period, what what would life have been like for people? 
And I ask that very, very broadly. So feel free to, you know, take, you know, take your answer however you want to, you know, best, best describe it. What, what, what would life have been like in the, in the city of Cordoba? Well, it, it, it depends to a certain extent when. Cordoba is a good example because it was a happening place. It was, it was very cosmopolitan. There would have been, uh, you know, there would have been uh, uh, still many Christians living in Cordoba. By the time we get to the period around 850 is interesting because this is when we start to see uh, really uh, the bulk of the population beginning to convert to Islam. And that set up a kind of very interesting situation because you had you had sort of uh, you had a Muslim population that, say, originated or traced their roots back to the eastern Mediterranean, the Arabian Peninsula and North Africa. You had a Christian population there. You would have had a Jewish community there. And then you would have had this population of new Muslims who were converts to Islam or the children of converts to Islam. And in some ways, this is kind of the most interesting group because they were really the most sort of, uh, in some ways, they would have been the most dynamic and I guess you would say reactionary group. Because, you know, when, when, when Christians converted to Islam, it came with the expectation for them that then they would, with this conversion, they would be able to become full members of this Islamic society. And they would get all of the privileges that came with being a Muslim as opposed to a Christian or Jew, who were kind of like, you know, legitimate but second-class citizens. And their life would be bettered because of that. And that wasn't always the case, of course. And so sometimes they felt uh, resentment or they became reactionary or they they retrenched in, in Islam and sort of became a reactionary force against their former co-religionists. So it was, it was uh, you know, the kind of city that, uh, that uh, you know, if you were walking down the street because it was the capital of, of what was becoming a, a Mediterranean empire, you would, you would see people and hear languages from, from across Christian Europe, from across the Mediterranean, from across North Africa. Uh, even, you know, Central Africans were starting to arrive at this time. So it was this highly cosmopolitan, highly mixed, dynamic, and highly charged environment where you could buy things from all over the world. You could, you could, you could get, you know, fruits and plants and foods that originated in places as far away as India. You could pass a mosque that was, you know, constructed to a great extent at a recycled and reused uh, ancient Roman columns and pillars. Uh, you would see, you know, uh, wealthy people dressed in silks that had come from as far east as Byzantium and beyond. And of course, you know, as anywhere in the world then as today, but particularly then, a, a, you know, a great mass of less privileged and less wealthy people who are just trying to get by and, and, and navigate their world their, their way through the world. But it must be said, one thing was that Muslim Islamic cities, you know, compared to Christian Europe at this time, were, you know, quite sophisticated and highly organized. They had municipal institutions like a police force, street cleaners, uh, rules about you know, not being able to throw litter in the streets. You couldn't have chimneys in the city. So it was this sort of, you know, something that, that resembled much more in some ways a modern city than one would think of a medieval city. Okay. 
So uh, some closing questions, Brian, and maybe for the sake of time, we can make these uh, rapid fire for, for context. Sure. Okay, so what comes to mind in terms of trade? So what, what do you think were the more popular um, products in the Emirate of Cordoba? And if you know, if it varies per region, feel, to, feel free to bring it in as needed. But what are the top kind of the t- top products that you think were being exchanged in this uh, in this in the Emirate of Cordoba? Well, again, it's hard to say what you had. There's, and the, you have to distinguish between kind of normal stuff and luxury stuff. Luxury stuff gets a lot of attention from historians. So you have things like silks coming in and out, exotica from Africa, uh, slaves. They're a commodity, too, who are coming in from both Africa and from, from pagan Europe. But just as important, and what often gets lost in the shuffle are the more basic commodities. And one of the interesting things that that came out of Cordoba was it was a a big center for the production of leather, which was shipped, you know, particularly to Europe. Uh, If you look at European languages, including English, uh, the word for leather worker in English, the old word is cordwainer, derives from the name of Cordoba. So part of the success of it was that it wasn't just a center for luxury trade. It had this vast... Uh, and diverse, vertically uh, integrated economy. Aside from water, what would have been the most popular drinks? Uh, well, wine was very big. Wine was very big. And, uh, you know, Muslims, Christians, and Jews all drank wine. Uh, religious prohibitions uh, against uh, Muslims drinking wine notwithstanding. Uh, and that's true, you know, across most of the Islamic world. That uh, wine was uh, was the popular drink. Uh, the caliphs were famous for enjoying good wine, as were most other people. And we have countless poems written praising wine and and uh, so on and so forth. So uh, without a doubt, it was it was Spanish wine uh, then as now. Uh, related to beverages, food. What would have been the popular food back then? Well, I mean, again, depends on your social class. Uh, you know, wealthier people ate better. But the remarkable thing is uh, there was, uh, uh, particularly, again, after 800, as Al-Andalus began to develop, there was this incredible proliferation of agricultural produce, much of which had been imported from other parts of the Islamic world or even as far away as India. So all kinds of exotic fruits, uh, nuts, of course, you know, meats, and then uh, you know, you can look at the Spanish cuisine of today and you can see that, uh, you know, a lot of things, uh, some of the rice dishes, the, many of the, the desserts are basically, you know, of, uh, of Andalusia origin. So I would say for those who could afford it, uh, you know, a very uh, abundant and, uh, and complex cuisine, including, you know, many spices and herbs and fruits and different sorts of vegetables. So, uh, you know, quite, uh, quite sophisticated. Okay. So you're in Barcelona right now. So you got over to, got over to Spain. So, uh, what's the lay of the land, uh, like over there and to put you to peg a date, it's June, June 10th, um, for anyone listening that we're doing this, uh, this recording 2021, what's the lay of the land like in, uh, in Spain right now? Well, things are just opening up now. So uh, bars and restaurants are open in the evening now. The, the patios are open. Uh, people are required to wear a mask in public, and, and most people do. But, you know, things, uh, particularly compared to the last 15 months, are, 
are feeling pretty normal. And that's, uh, that's quite nice. People are out in the street as they like to be here and enjoying themselves. And, uh, it's, uh, as always, it's a, uh, it's a real pleasure to be here as I am every summer. Okay. Yeah. I hope to get, uh, back to Spain this, this fall. What, uh, what are you working on these days? Well, I'm sort of tying up a lot of, uh, odds and ends. One of the, uh, one of the big, one of the best medieval archives, uh, uh, for the late Middle, Egypt, the Middle Ages is here in Barcelona, the Archive of the Crown of Aragon. And uh, a lot of the work I do looks at social and economic history of Muslims, mostly Muslims, but also Jews living under Christian rule in the 13th, and 14th, and 15th century. So I do a little bit of detective work and I, I try to find out as close as possible what life was like for uh, ordinary people in this time. And how Christians and Muslims and Jews either got along or didn't get along. What brought them together and, and what sorts of things drove them apart. Okay. It was a pleasure speaking with you again, Brian. Thank you for coming on the show. My pleasure as always. Good to talk to you, Andrew. Uh, have a great day and uh, enjoy your summer. Thanks, Brian. Again, everybody, the couple books that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Dr. Katlos authored. Muslims of Medieval Latin Christendom, circa 1050 to 1614, and Kingdoms of Faith, A New History of Islamic Spain. I'll drop links to both the books in the show notes on the Ithacabound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Brian and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Thank you. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast, and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.